0: Honestly, for me, going through this passage was really, really good. You know, there were a lot of things in here that were good reminders for me, things I don't think I've been remembering for a while, at least not the way I feel like I have at one point. So there's just a lot of good, convicting things that I think, uh, after studying them, you know, this, this is life-transforming stuff in here. So I don't want to set the, two, the bar too high today, but, you know, listening to this passage, the things we're admonished to do, you know, i will change your life and the way you live. So... While I was studying uh, for this sermon, one of the things that I looked up was a a quick search on IMDb and I looked up how many apocalyptic movies have been made. So what I found was about 1,153, at least from their count, uh, movies have been made in the past hundred years, about end of the world, stuff like that, different scenarios. So all these movies, you probably see some familiar ones, they all try to figure out, you know, What's going to happen when the world ends? What's going to lead us up to that point? What's it going to be like? Uh, stuff like that. And most of it's totally unrealistic, totally impossible. Uh, usually you don't walk away from these movies feeling warm and happy. It's not usually the goal of them. Uh, you usually you walk away thinking, wow, that would be really scary if that happened. Uh, so especially the ones with zombies in it, which is like 95% of these movies. So, Now usually all of these are all geared to do a few things to shock you to maybe scare you a little bit. Um, If they did a really good job, they might actually get you to think, oh, that could be how things go down, you know, if they did a good job of it. So what are your feelings when you've seen movies like this? Or what are your feelings when you've thought about, you know, the world ending? Stuff like that. Do you get anxious? Do you worry? Um, Do you look at the world today and wonder what is going to happen in the future? Am I going to be ready, prepared for any of these things? So, when the, uh, when the Left Behind series came out, so my wife Hannah was a kid at that time, and uh, this got her thinking about these kind of things, and she was a little freaked out, a little bit worried about what was going to happen, so she packed a suitcase, filled it with uh, some clothes, some slippers, and a whole bunch of stuffed animals, put it by the front door, and she was ready to go if anything went down. So on a scale of like one to prepare it, I'd give her like a two, and I would have packed probably like a machete, some spam, something to last for a while, <laughs> something like that. So... Now, whether you think about the end of the world, end times, things like this, and you get worried, you get a little bit anxious, or if you think, you know, nothing like this is ever going to happen in my time. You know, I don't even really think the world's going to end like this. You know, whatever you might think, in our passage today, we're going to see there's really only two different realities for people in the world, two different scenarios uh, for the, when the world as we know it is going to be changed at the return of Jesus. So with that, really the questions I want us to look at and us to answer today is what should we do, think, and feel about the return of Christ? So before we do that, let's pray together and then we'll dive into chapter 5. Would you guys pray with me? Father God, we thank you um, this morning that we have your word to go to. God, we thank you that you have been laying out a story for thousands of years. God, that you have put us in and God, you have been the one who has promised so many things to us, Lord. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your promises to us in your word today. God, would you help us to see and understand and love you, look forward to being with you forever. And God, would you just uh, get rid of any fear that we have in our hearts when we think of the day that we meet you? God, would we see that you are good and you are gracious and that you love us? Um, so please help us to see those things this morning, Lord, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you guys would, either turn or tap your way in your Bible to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. Uh, There's some Bibles and seats around you. If you guys don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's a gift to you. So chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another, one another up, just as you are doing. So remember that Paul, uh, you know, he had been with the Thessalonians for about three weeks, he had gone away. And now he had sent Timothy back to the Thessalonians to find out how they're doing, see what questions that they had. So as Paul's writing this letter, you know, Timothy's brought back news and Paul's answering questions that they had. Um, And this, you know, response here is answering the question that I assume that they were asking is, when is Jesus coming back? What's going to be involved? You know, I'm assuming they were uh, curious, maybe even concerned about what was going to be involved. So Paul starts out his response, uh, reminding them that even though he was just there a short time teaching them, you know, they pretty much know what they need to know. Not in the sense they know the day of his return, but in the sense that they understand the times, the seasons, the world that they're living in, and they know that the return of Jesus is imminent. So Paul says, you know, you really don't need me to write anything to you, but since he asked, here's a few reminders. And then he goes into that. First, he says, Remember, Jesus will return like a thief in the night. So he's going to come back at a time that's not expected at all. You know, people are going to be saying peace and safety. And in the Roman world that the Thessalonians lived in, you think about the Pax Romana, Roman peace, things you've heard from, you know, history back then. You know, they lived in a place of relative peace, all things considered. So for the Thessalonians hearing the statement, Paul's saying peace and safety, you know, they're hearing this and thinking that, you know, this really means Jesus can be here anytime. You know, this is the world that we live in right now. You know, the phrase nowadays might be something like, what a time to be alive. Uh, Living my best life now. Living the dream, which is usually sarcastic when people say it. But healthy and wealthy, something like that. So Paul says Jesus is going to return at a point like this when everything seems to be going nice and smooth and good in terms of the world. Uh, You know, a thriving economy, world peace, harmony, when those kind of things seem to characterize the world, that's when Paul says sudden destruction is what comes. So, Paul compares it to labor pains. They're sudden, they're inevitable, and once they start, there's no way around it. So ladies, if anyone ever tries to tell you childbirth isn't that bad, remind them the Bible uses it as an analogy for destruction coming to the earth. (laughs) So, that'll put that to bed really quick. Now, it's important to also see that surprise and sudden destruction in here. It occurs to who? It occurs to they in verse 3. So Paul transitions from you in verse 2 to they in verse 3. That's key to notice. He makes this even clearer in verse 4 because he says, But you are not in darkness. You will not be overtaken like a thief. So Jesus is going to come at an unexpected time, but you are going to be ready. Why? Because he says the Thessalonian Christians are sons of light, sons of the day. What does that mean? Well, compare that with the description of the other group. It says they're of the night and of darkness. So does Paul mean that, you know, we should all move to Alaska in the summer so that we can always be living, you know, where it's daylight? I don't think so. But he goes on to say Christians should also be awake and sober while others are drunk and asleep. So should we aspire to insomnia so that we never sleep? Like Is that what he's getting at here? I don't think so. No, he's describing two different identities and he's describing how those identities are lived out. So we're going to look at two different passages, one from Ephesians 5 and one from Colossians 1 that I think really help us understand what Paul's getting at here when he's talking about darkness and light, you know, day and night. We're going to look first at Ephesians 5, verse 7. Here's what it says. Therefore do not become partners with them, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Then Colossians 1, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So as we're thinking about darkness and light day and night, so these passages point out something really clear for us. We were all, every one of us, we were all once in the camp of darkness. So every person in this room either was once in darkness or still is. Those are the two scenarios we have here. But a change is possible if you are in darkness. And I love how Colossians says it. This is one of my favorite verses. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So you go from darkness to light because God does it. So, I mean, tell me if you were born in the darkness and the darkness raised you, do you have any idea where you are? Or if you were not only born in darkness, but you've also been asleep ever since you were born, do you have any idea what's going on around you? No, you wouldn't. You need someone to bring light to you. You need someone to wake you up. You need to be shown the way out of where you are. And the Bible makes it clear in this place and countless other places, this is something that only God can do in our lives, to bring us from darkness into light, into a brand new kingdom. Now I can tell you guys from my own life, you know, I once lived in complete darkness. One story that I think illustrates this is when I was a sophomore in college, which sophomore in Greek, if you don't know, it means wise fool, which is exactly who I was. Um, I thought I had all the answers, but I was actually uh, pretty dumb. So, anyways, I was living the college life over at UMD. I was partying, living it up, living my best life, or so I thought. Um, really, for me, I came to college, uh, wanted to make a new life for myself after high school. Freshman year of high school, there I was, starting out, a 4 four-foot-eleven, chubby-cheeked, 13-year-old freshman in high school. So I wasn't exactly, you know, the most popular person. But uh, at college, by my sophomore year, i say I would hit most of the benchmarks I had been, you know, seeking out to hit with this new life that I was living. I wanted to party, wanted to have a lot of friends and a lot of other things that came with that lifestyle and, you know, I nailed it. You know, I had it. it like, this, this is great. And one particular night um, in the spring of 2013, my roommates and I threw a party at our house. You know, I drank to the point of blackout that night, which was a pretty common thing um, at that time. And uh, it must have been a pretty emotional night uh, because I poured out my heart where all college students pour out their hearts, uh, my Twitter account. So (laughs) I I woke up the next morning and I I looked at my Twitter and I saw I had tweeted out, there's got to be more than this. So I wake up and I see that's what I had tweeted. So here I was living in darkness, thinking I had things figured out, But God in that moment was waking me up from my drunken stupor, literally in this case, to see that I really had no idea what life was about. You know, several months later, he shined light on just the piles of sin in my life and I was broken over it. He led me to repentance. He forgave me through Christ. He brought me to the kingdom of his Son and he transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to that of light. Now while God is the one who does this in our lives, we must also respond. And I want to point that out in case anybody in your heart, you're thinking, well, you know, you hear my story and you think, well, God hasn't chosen to do something like that in my life. I haven't had a change in my life. He hasn't forced me to give up things that I want to do. You know, Jesus paid for our sin, but we don't receive forgiveness until we trust him. And it's the same way, honestly, even once we're in Christ, that he continues to transform our lives. He wants to make us holy, but we don't grow without trusting and obeying him from here on out. So you take the the case of a farmer. A farmer might believe genuinely that God is the one who gives growth to everything that he has in his field. All of his crops. God gives the growth. But if he doesn't get out of bed, plant the field, and water it, still nothing's going to happen. So for each of us, when we get saved, we just come to him. He doesn't turn away anyone who comes to him. It's his joy to bring people from darkness into light and if you're hearing my voice today, if you're hearing the good news that Jesus died to forgive sin, if you've heard that God gives His Holy Spirit to transform you, if you hear that, that offer is for you today, this moment. And all you have to do is tell God that you want it. Now, if you have become a child of light, but you're still wrestling with darkness in your life, the same thing we need to do then. Trust Jesus with that too. Go to Him, open His Word pray, talk with godly people. You know, the word says, confess your sins to one another, you'll be healed. You know, there's, if there's not someone around you you want to talk to and you're wrestling with these things in darkness, there are infinite Christian counselors you can find online. Make sure you find some good ones. But there are plenty of people you can talk with. And when you start to do these things and you start to step into the light as a Christian with darkness, God is going to transform you and change you. So don't doubt that he wants to do that. And back to our passage, only... Two different people exist, Paul says, what we're looking at. Those in darkness, those in light. So when we consider the day of the Lord, which is just a a euphemism for the return of Jesus, what can we expect? There's some answers here in this passage, but I want to turn to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look at a parable that Jesus himself tells when he's talking about the kingdom of God. So let's turn there together, Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 1. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So, one thing as we're looking at this parable that we have to understand is that Jewish. Marriage Jewish uh, tradition is a little bit different than ours nowadays. So there's a slide up here, kind of goes point by point on you know the process of a Jewish wedding. Some you know parallels with uh, you know us as a church, the bride of Christ. A lot of parallels there. We're not going to get into all of that, but I want to go through some key points um, in here uh, that are really pertinent to what we're talking about. So first, in the Jewish uh, marriage tradition, the father of the groom would choose a bride for his son. A price would be paid for the bride. And a covenant ceremony would be performed after which the bride and the groom, you know, they were legally married. They were bound at that point. Now, there was no consummation of the marriage at that point but instead, after the ceremony, the groom would leave for up to a year. He would, you know, leave his bride with like a coin or a ring, that was tradition, uh, for her to remember him by and he would go. And during this time that he's away, he's preparing a place for them to live together. Um, usually what he would do is he would add on space to his father's house. He would build on, he would add on. And when everything was ready, his father would tell him, all right, now is the time to go back. And one person was talking about it's a good thing the father got to decide because if it was the son going to get his bride, he would have put up like two two two-by-fours with some tarps and said, I'm going to get her. I'm coming back. (laughs) So the father is the one who gets to decide when it's ready and he says, all right, son, go get your bride. So, All the while that this is going on, the bride is going to be preparing herself for a different life. Not under the authority of her father anymore, but now with a new man in a new place. The groom would come back in an unknown time to get her. You know, usually this was like around midnight on a given night, somewhere late. Um, And so he would come. And in this parable of the wedding party, we're looking at the bridesmaids here. They're waiting for the groom so they can take him in a procession to the place where the bride is waiting. So notice... You know, everyone who joins them in that place in the parable, they get to be part of the joy and the feasting and the wedding. Now the bride and groom, they're finally together. They're finally going to be with life for good together. And he comes, though, at an unexpected time for all ten of these bridesmaids, bridesmaids who are going to lead him there. We're told five of them were prepared. Five of them were not prepared. So, they had oil, the wise ones. They got their lamps going and they went in with the groom and they go into the celebration and the door is shut And when the others finally show up, they knock at the door and they're denying entry. So the feast has already begun but they weren't ready for the time of his arrival. Now they all thought they would be at the wedding but at this point, you know, to them, this groom is little more than a thief in the night like we read about. And so what happens? The rest are feasting. The groom comes to the door. He says he doesn't know the foolish bridesmaids and the door is closed. And commenting on this parable, Charles Spurgeon, an old preacher, he says this about it. He says, "When that door is once shut, it will never be opened. There are some who dote and dream about an opening of that door after death, for those who have died in penitent, but there is nothing in the Scriptures to warrant such an expectation. Any larger hope than what is revealed in the Word of God is a delusion and a snare." So Paul's not telling the Thessalonians anything new when he's writing in chapter five. He's saying the same thing that Jesus had taught. If we are unprepared in the darkness, what should we expect? Destruction and wrath. If we are in the light and we are ready, what should we expect? Salvation and life. Now the point of the parable and of what Paul is saying in our passage today is be ready. Act accordingly. Be ready for that day when Jesus returns to get his bride. Now this isn't a a popular thing to say nowadays that there would be destruction for anybody and there's one way to life. And really, as we read this, you know, I want to ask the question, is the goal of all this to scare us? Is that why this is written down, why Paul wrote this? Uh, I mean, if you're not prepared, honestly, it should. But the goal with all this is actually to encourage us. Because if we know the groom who is coming for his bride, then we're looking forward to his return. We want him to come back. If we're part of his bride, the church, then he's going to bring us to the place that he's prepared for us with his father. And that means for all the guys in here, you are part of the bride of Christ. We, congratulations. And you've probably heard Kyle say this before. Remember, for the ladies, you're all sons of God. So we each have something that's a little uncomfortable. So I just mentioned that. We can't get into being sons of God. It's a good thing. But, you know, just in case anyone's offended at being called a bride, it it goes both ways here. So, now for those who are married, uh, for those who are engaged, you know, I want you to think back or even what you're experiencing right now as you're leading up to your wedding day. You know, what kind of feelings did you have? What kind of thoughts? You know, maybe you're a little bit nervous thinking about your coming wedding day because you got some details to nail down, stuff like that. But overall, you're looking forward with anticipation, with excitement. You're itching for that day to finally get here, for it to finally happen. You know, it's one of the best days of your life. It's something you're always going to remember. You're not going to forget that day. So this is why Paul wants the Thessalonians to be encouraging one another when they think about the coming day of the Lord. They're going to finally see the perfect groom who loves them at that point, the one that they have been waiting for. There's nothing to fear. There's only joy at that moment. And here's the other thing. It doesn't matter if they die before that day because like Mike talked about last week, you know, Jesus is going to come and those who are dead, he's going to wake them up with a word like they're taking a nap. That's what it's going to be like. So there is nothing to fear. There's nothing to worry about. There's only good hopes and expectations for that day. There's no zombies that we're waiting for. It's all going to be good when Christ comes back. So, remind each other of that. And remind each other of that, especially if life is difficult right now and it's hard. Remember a day that is coming is going to be when your groom comes to take you home. He's going to provide for all of your needs. He's going to make sure you have joy forever. He's going to care for you. Everything is going to be handled. Now, thinking about uh, this promise that we have as Christians, this hope of eternal life, this, you know, God who's going to provide for us in his home and a place. You know, I recently saw one of the, uh, the new Marvel movies, and I, I won't name it so I don't spoil anything for anybody, but in the opening scene of this one, you know, there's this, this God and this follower and this scene going down, and ultimately it just makes an absolute mockery of this promise that God has for us. It makes a mockery of God, it makes a mockery of eternal life, things like that. And so I just bring that up, you know, those being some super popular movies nowadays, just to remind you guys that when you think about the culture, you think about the world around us, you know, believing in this kind of thing can be looked at like a myth. It can be looked at like you're, you're an idiot for believing that foolishness. Or even if you think about our spiritual enemy, you know, this is something that he hates, that we have a promise like this, something he's not going to be a part of. So, you know, even for the bride in our story, you know, in this marriage story, you think about her getting a promise uh, from this guy that has been chosen for her. Um, they've gotten to know each other probably a little bit at this point, but here she's got this coin to remember him by. And now she's waiting for a year for him to come back and get her. You know, during that time, what is she going to be thinking? Is she going to be, you know, seeing these other guys around, like thinking, comparing, contrasting? You know, is she going to be thinking, is this guy really worth waiting for? Is he really even going to come back for me? You know, should I be preparing myself to even, you know, be a wife for this guy? And so. You know, all that to say, there's a lot of questions that can come up and doubts that can come up. And especially when you're living in a world that tells you this is, you know, this is hogwash. Don't believe that. We need to be constantly staying awake and sober and being reminded that this is the truth and this is real and this is what we're looking for. And so Paul in this passage, you know, he he gives us some pieces of armor, which means that, you know, this is a, he's describing a war going on as we prepare for the day that Jesus is coming back. And he says we guard our hearts and we prepare ourselves with faith and love. He describes a breastplate, you know, armor, guards your heart. And he describes the hopeful expectation of our salvation being something that guards our mind. It's a helmet for our mind. So with those things, what Paul is saying is he's telling them, stay awake and be sober. To be awake means that we're aware we're watching, we're not distracted, we're not sleeping. And to be sober means that we assess things rightly with right judgment, proper judgment. Um, you know, And you contrast that with drunkenness. When you're drunk, your, decision, your decisions are skewed. You know, Your choices that you make, they're not rooted in reality as it is. Um, they're all over the place. And to be sober is to live in this world making decisions based on the fact that Jesus is coming back. That's the moment that we're preparing for here in life now. Now, we're making ourselves ready for him, first and foremost. You know, not our retirement, not the cabin, not our legacy, not toys, not entertainment. None of this kind of stuff is not what we're to be, you know, taking our time with and spending with and preparing for. No, the person who lives in the metaphorical drunken darkness is living for this world only and really has no awareness of the future that is coming. So they'll be surprised and they'll lose everything that they've lived for. That's what we're learning in these passages here. So, we're going to start wrapping up things um, with the verses that I think sum up the big idea here uh, verses 9 and 10 in chapter 5. I'll read them again. Uh, verse 9 It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So, whatever we believe about the chain of events that actually lead up to this day of the Lord, and Mike kind of referenced some of that stuff last week. You know, unfortunately, we haven't dived into, you know, much of that stuff of, you know, all the steps. But whatever we believe, here's what we need to hold on to tightly. So we are not destined for wrath on that day. But instead, we have salvation secured because of Jesus. So he carried his cross up the Golgotha hill. He was nailed to it. He was raised from the ground He experienced the wrath for our sin. He experienced separation from his father. He endured all that so that on the day when he comes back to get his bride, none of us have to experience that. He took that. He took our place in all those things. So we're not destined for wrath on that day, but we have salvation secured. And he did that so that for the coming millennia, you know, all who believe in him, whether they die waiting for him, whether they're present when he comes back, it says all are going to live with him. Not one is going to be lost. So if you think like Noah and the animals in the ark, you know, they were safe and secure in the ark when the wrath of God came upon the earth and destroyed everything. Destruction came. Those in the ark were safe and we too are going to be safe in Christ when the wrath of God is poured out on the world one final time. Paul is saying we are secure in Christ and we can look forward to final salvation. And so, even now, as we're alive, we live with him. So what does that mean? We live sober. We live awake. We take up our cross as well and we fight sin. We try to do what First Thessalonians chapter 1 talks about. It talks about we live out our works of faith, our labors of love, and our steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, through this, my goal has been to not sugarcoat anything in this passage you guys. If I'm honest, you know, I don't want to talk about the destruction and the wrath of God in a way to minimize it in any way because truthfully, I don't think I can communicate it uh, to explain how serious it really is. I don't think any of us can. But in the same breath, there's no fear in any of it because God has shown us a path to avoid it completely. And this is his desire for everybody. Not just avoiding it, but having fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore that are promised to us. That's what he has. He has So some of us have heard this a million times. Jesus is that way. And that way still has not changed. And so as we think about that, you know, it's always a simple thing. You know, to escape this wrath, it's through Christ who's done what's needed to be done. And so Christians, for you who know this, who know the two different places for darkness and for light and the kingdoms there, we're to tell others about this as well. And in light of what we're talking about today, I want to read for you guys Proverbs chapter 24. Some verses from there. Here's what they say They say, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So, as you think about us living in Duluth, Minnesota, living in America. You know, we have those who are stumbling to the slaughter in terms of, you know, light and darkness. And really, with all the resources that we have and all the churches who preach the gospel and all the access online to all these different things where we can all hear about the gospel and learn anything that we want to about it, really, you know, there's a lot of, honestly, willful walking towards the slaughter. Not just stumbling. You know, not not everyone's completely, you know, unaware of what is coming, but when you start thinking about those who really are in darkness, who are totally unaware of this, we got to start thinking of, you know, beyond even just right here, right now. Think of, think of a person in China who might want to access some information about this on the internet. And they live in a place where the internet is censored and they can't find everything that they would want to know. Or think about growing up in Pakistan where you are raised being taught that Christianity is a lie and it's actually a hostile thing that you shouldn't even consider. Or you think about growing up in a place where the name of Jesus is not something you've ever even heard. You don't know anything about Christianity. When you think about those places, those are the places where this passage, when you think of those stumbling to the slaughter, people have no idea about any of this. You know That's why in Christianity, and that's why Jesus commands us to go to the ends of the earth. bring brings this message to lots and lots of people who have never even heard it. So I just want to use that as an aside to not only remind us there's people around us who need this. We've been called to bring it, but we've also been called to bring it to the nations, to the ends of the earth. So if God is stirring anything in your heart for that too, to go to people who have never heard, you know, don't just hold that in. Start exploring ways that you can do that, not just here at home, but also around the world. So verse 12 says, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, I'm sorry, but you know about it now. Um, There it is. The question I have for you is, How will your works of faith, your labors of love, your steadfastness of hope, how is that going to be a light that you can shine to rescue others? And I don't want you guys to take this to mean that your aspirations now should be to be the next uh, Billy Graham or preacher or some great evangelist, as if that's the only calling that God values in this arena. You know, God has given many, many, many gifts to his people, and all of them are valuable. We find lots of lists throughout the Scripture of what these gifts are, and there's even gifts that are beyond what are, what are listed there. Uh, how many of you guys know the story of Dorcas. Great name, right? Or Tabitha, as she's known. We find her story in Acts chapter 9 and I want to just read it for you really quick. Acts 9, uh, 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So Dorcas, or Tabitha, her Jewish name, you know, she wasn't a preacher or a healer, she wasn't anything earth shaking or shattering. She was good at sewing, and she constantly served people with the gift that she had. Her impact was huge, her love was well known by people all around her. She served with what she had while she waited for Jesus. And, you know, in the story, we see that God deemed it worthwhile to raise her from the dead so she could keep doing what she was doing, keep serving others, and so that he could show his mighty power even more in her life. So contrary to the advice of Gary Vee or Tony Robbins or Pick Your Motivational Speaker, you guys don't have to become this huge, you know, world-changing impactor to be able to serve God faithfully. In his kingdom. No, what you have to do is while you wait for Jesus, you serve faithfully with what you have, whatever gifting or skill that might be. You serve and love others, you serve the poor, you honor God with what you do, and you trust that as you do that, God's gonna bless you and he might even give you more gifts and skills to serve people even more. But use what you have. Now, as we all do that in our lives, here's the reminders keep awake and alert. Don't let the lull of earthly distractions you know, put you to sleep and make you forget and be unaware of what your calling really is and what you're really looking forward to um, at the day of the Lord. Don't forget what it means to live as a citizen in the kingdom of light that God has transferred you into. You fix your eyes on the coming hope and you don't fear, but you encourage one another. You don't just remind yourself. We encourage each other to keep going, to keep looking forward one of the commentators I read, and he he said this in regards to this passage. He says, It is clear that in the primitive churches or the early churches, the care of souls was not delegated to an individual officer or even the more gifted brethren among them. It was a work in which every believer might have a share. So when you hear this today and you hear be reminded, think about these things. This isn't just to come Sunday morning and hear somebody preach about it, or to hear a small group leader or whoever else you look to as a leader remind you of it. This is for you to take, to take in your heart, to remind other people of as well and to encourage them with. So we're, we're all in this together. I just want to leave you guys with a few last points here. Um, kind of the big things I hope you take away. First one, I've said it multiple times. Stay awake, stay sober. Have your mind fixed on his return. Stay sober in the time right now. Put sin to death. Don't let the things around you distract you. Pull away from serving him. Uh, Resist distractions. Resist temptations. You know, again, sobriety. What does that mean? Have a clear mind. Focus on what needs to be focused on. Have right judgment. And sober doesn't mean somber. You know, you can have fun with these things, but do them the way that God wants them to be done. Second thing, encourage one another. Like I already said, remind each other the wedding day is coming. That's something to anticipate and be excited about. Speak truth to one another. Preach the gospel to one another. Uh, we're just remind each other, our, our groom is coming. Remember that. And I especially, you know, like I mentioned at the start, reading this passage is something that has been really good for me um, in the past week or so. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I don't look that old, but I've been married for about six years. And here's something I know. You know, you, you look forward to life with your spouse and you think about, man, we are going to just push each other in our walks towards Jesus. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to love one another. This is going to be great. And then you get six years down the road and you realize, man, I haven't really been doing that that often. And, you know, even to the point where you start bringing stuff up and, you know, encouraging your wife, preaching the gospel. And you're like, what? You know, why, are you, why are you reminding me of this? You haven't been doing this for like two years now. And I'm not saying that that's where everybody is, but I know that each of us can get there. So even if it's awkward to start doing this again in your marriage, I just want to encourage you guys to do it. Because this is one of the, the giftings and blessings that God's given us in our marriage. Encourage one another Start doing it until it feels normal again, uh, like you did when you first got married. So, last thing as well. Uh, this might seem a little off topic with what we've been going through, um, but given that this is the end times, I want to encourage us to do this, uh, end times we've been looking at. So, I want to challenge you guys to study how Jesus will return. So, eschatology, that's a fancy church word. So, we haven 't really gotten into anything of you know looking at the exact events, things like that, you know the post mill pre mill, all that kind of stuff, uh, but I want to encourage you guys to do that on your own, you know not necessarily so that you 'll be like, "I figured out how Jesus is coming back. I know this is what's going to happen first and then this and this and then he 's coming back, but I want to challenge you guys to look into it because it 's going to force you to do a deep dive into your Bible and Really, I think your mind would be blown by seeing how interconnected the Bible is from Old Testament to New Testament, how many things reference each other, and just to get a full picture of the fact of, like, this really is God's word. Like, this, this wasn't one guy who was smart and put this thing together. God has been pointing to this from the moment he created the world. And there's, you know, the nuggets of it all throughout Scripture. So I want to challenge you guys to study eschatology. Look into, you know, maybe you'll land and you'll be like, I'm a post mill. I'm a... You know, Whatever the different thing is where you land, I don't care as much. I have my own views. We can talk about them. But um, I just want you guys to study the word, figure out, be encouraged by all that God has done for you, and remember all the things you really are looking forward to. So really, together, let's prepare. Let's be ready for the wedding day that we're looking forward to. You know, our groom, he's coming soon. He's going to take us home. He's prepared a place. So let's remember that together. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you have laid out your plans, God, since before the foundations of the world you've had these things planned. God, you have set your love upon a people. You have chosen a bride for your son and you have sent him in the world to pay a price to get her. God, we pray that you would fill our hearts with love for you, for your son, the work you've done. God, would you remind us constantly um, of what we have to look forward to. God, would you fill us with your spirit and transform us in the time here and now. Um, God, would you let our eyes be fixed on you coming back for us. Um, Lord, just pray that for each one of us, we'd mature as we wait. And God, we pray that you would give us great hope for the future, give us uh, security and peace in knowing who you are, Lord. And we just pray that you would come soon, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.
1: Thanks, Zach. Church family, we're now going to respond to the preaching of God's word in in several ways. We're going to sing together. We're going to give of our tithes and offerings. Uh, We're going to hear about some things that are going on in our church. And then we're going to take communion together. And uh, for the first time since 2020, we have real bread uh, for the Lord's Supper, which is really exciting. Um, So in case you've forgotten how this works, uh, you're going to come up, you're going to take a piece of bread dip it in the cup, and then return to your seats. Uh, we will have regular bread on the outside here, uh, and then in the middle I'll be standing here and all the plate of gluten-free bread. Um, we also have the, the individual communion packets that we've been using, and they'll be in the back uh, by the coffee if you're more comfortable doing that. Um, since it's been a while, j- just a practical note for this, if you drop your bread in the cup, which happens, don't fish it out, just grab a new piece, you know? <laughs> Also, another thing is that, you know, communion, doing communion in this way is a little bit slower, so take your time, be patient with one another. Um, communion is a practice for the family of God to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus, not just in a mental way, but in an embodied way. So if you are not a Christian, I would just ask that you stay in your seat. There's no shame with that. We wouldn't want you to declare something about yourself that is not true. Because Christians, when you come forward and you take communion, you are declaring to the world, you're declaring to yourself, declaring to our God, I need Jesus to save me from my sins, to wash me clean. So, to prepare our hearts this morning, I'm going to read the words of Jesus as recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And here's the verse that, that really connects to what Zach was saying For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when you're ready, come forward.